0: Uh, All that we are and all that we do, all of the energy and time that we put into life is to be about Jesus Christ. Thank you. One amen to that. I was expecting a little bit more, but I got a second sentence here, another opportunity. At the center of this church, our marriages, our families, our friendships, and our personal lives is Jesus Christ. Amen. Perfect. Now we say that say a little amen to that. We agree even if we didn't say amen, but really let's be honest, when we say that Jesus is at the very center of our lives, that's really something that's aspirational. It's something that we wish for, we hope for, we're working toward. It's something that we sing about and we state and we say it in a way that we realize that we have not arrived. But that, that really is the goal of our lives, is to have Jesus at the very center for those of us who are Christians. But let's be honest, even those who love and follow Jesus Christ struggle to make that true day by day. It's a battle. It's a battle to keep Jesus at the center, isn't it? It's a battle to keep him at the center. And then, that's an honest moment. You know, we're saying that. But to be brutally honest. We love brutal honesty. To be brutally honest, many professing Christians aren't even trying to keep Jesus at the center. Professing, many professing Christians don't even try to keep Jesus at the center. Now, today's passage, we're in Acts chapter 2. Peter continues this sermon that he's preaching on the day of uh, Pentecost. And he's already addressed, we saw last week, there there was... um, uh, these miraculous signs that, that took place, the 120 filled with the Holy Spirit started speaking the word of God in languages they had never heard before. There was the mighty rushing wind, this crowd of people from Jerusalem in for the festival of Pentecost. They've all come because they want to see what's going on with this crowd. They've heard this commotion and they, they, they've, they've been attracted to it. And Peter dispenses with the explanation of what happened with the people speaking in other languages, the miraculous signs that had taken place. And now in this next part of the sermon, he turns their attention toward the central message of the sermon, the central figure of the sermon to Jesus Christ. Three times he's going to use this little phrase, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus in this small section of the sermon. And as we look at what he says about this Jesus, we're going to see aspects of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And then that's going to present us with some imperatives for our own lives. There are implications to seeing Jesus in this way. Imperatives that are going to point us toward having this Jesus at the very center of every single part of our lives. And listen, that's going to mean change for all of us. There's no one that escapes a message like this. Keeping Jesus at the center for believers is a challenge. So whether you're a new believer and you're still working a lot of this out or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades and decades, you understand that there are parts of your life that remain unsurrendered to Jesus. And as mature as you might be in Christ, and as much as you might know the Word of God, as mature as you think you might be, you realize just how far short of the mark of Christ's likeness you really are. We could all do, in other words, we could all do with a little bit more Jesus at the center of our lives. Amen? We could all do with that. And so that's where this text will drive us. It's going to mean change for all of us. This Jesus compels it. So let me read the text and then I'll pray for us. This is um, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 36. The Apostle Peter is speaking. It's, It's in the middle of his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's pray together. Father, there is uh, uh, no doubt that this is a challenging uh, passage and this is a sober moment. I pray, God, that as we um, lean in to hear your word, to really hear it, Uh, Father, you would be working by your Holy Spirit to convince us of the truths that we're going to hear and to convict us down to the very depth of our soul. God, that you would change our minds about these things. That we would be more committed than ever to having Jesus Christ at the very center of every part of our lives. Father, do the work that only you can do in this place right now. We bring our feeble gifts, our feeble attempts to follow you to the table. But we need your Holy Spirit to take us the rest of the way. Please, Father, do a mighty, mighty work here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go after it. This Jesus is, uh, first of all, we're going to look at aspects of who he is and what he's done and the implications for us. This Jesus is human. Um, identify with him. Now, this shouldn't be hard since Jesus became human, and uh, we're human. How many humans here today? Just raise your hand if you're human. I notice a number of you not raising your hands. It it raises some questions for me. But we are human. He was human. He was made human. He was uh, incarnate in human flesh. So Peter starts off his message this way, and you, you see Jesus in his humanity here. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Case okay, he's pulling their attention in. Jesus of Nazareth, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies the place that he's from. Jesus was kind of like a common name at the time, so he wants everyone to be absolutely sure who we're talking about here. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That name for him comes up repeatedly in the book of Acts. Notice he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, notice he says, a man, a man, human like us, lived here amongst us, attested to you by God. We'll come back to that. So, so here he is, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived here in our country. He lived in a village just north of here. He grew up with a mom and dad and brothers and sisters and he learned a trade. He, he lived not far from here. Went to synagogue just like you do on the Sabbath. But the unique thing about him, he was, in a lot of ways, he was just like you, was human, But but human. But in one way, he was different in that he was a man attested to by God. Now, that word attested to means accredited to hold office accredited to hold office or authorized to hold office. And and in fact, it carries the idea that he was appointed to an office, but had not yet assumed that office. This is going to happen um, a few weeks from now. In fact, we have a a federal election uh, happening right now, and there will be some new members of parliament who are elected in various ridings across the country. Uh, They've never been in parliament before, and in the space of time from election night, when they win the election, until they stand before the governor general and are actually sworn in as a member of parliament, taking their seat in parliament, that period of time, they are not known as a member of parliament, they are known as a member of parliament elect. If we get a new prime minister on the 21st, 21st of October, he will be known, he or she will be known as the Prime Minister elect until such time as they're sworn in. And in some senses, this word attested to you by God is that, that, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah elect. He's been given the office, but really it's in the crucifixion and resurrection when he completes all the steps of being a messiah. Again, all of this from a very human perspective. But when he completes all the the steps, then he will fully assume the office of Messiah. We will recognize him as such when he's done the actual saving part of what it means to be the Messiah. And so the crucifixion and resurrection are like the swearing-in ceremony and the full attestation or authorization or authentication or formal recognition of him as the Messiah. Now what's awesome about that is he's a, he's a man, he, he, God in flesh, living right here amongst us. But what's awesome about this is how God rolled out His plan so that we we don't to use the words of the. Of the the preacher, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. And in chapter 4, verse 15, we can say this with that preacher. We don't have a Savior who is unacquainted with our sorrows, with our temptations, with our trials. But one who in every way was tempted as we are and yet without sin. He lived the life that we live. We have a Savior who identifies with us he gets it he gets it he's not a he's not a distant god he's not an uninvolved god he's not a god who is so other and he is other he's very transcendent but not a god who's so other that he doesn't also relate to us we have a god and savior who lived on this earth who Felt pain and sorrow and loss. Who suffered trials. Who was accused and maligned and gossiped about and misunderstood. Just as many of us are. I can identify with this Savior because He identified with me. And that's the starting point for our faith. A God who understands our condition. But this Jesus didn't remain just as a man. He didn't come down just to identify with us. This Jesus is also, see this next. He's also powerful. Have faith in him. The means of God's attestation of Jesus, the way that he authenticated him. Verse 22 continues, with mighty works, another word for that is miracles, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This, in, in essence, these miracles were his calling card. I don't think we really even use calling cards anymore. I'm not talking about the telephone card that you might use. I don't even think we use those anymore. But but a calling card at the time was if you visited someone's front door, you knocked on their door and they weren't there, you would take a card. It could be a business card, but you would take a card and you would slip it into the door, into the door jam so that when they came home, they would see that you had been there. um, And that was your calling card. Now, what we do is we stand outside the door and we text them. Are you in there? (laughs) Don't we do that now? We text them or I was at your door And then you tap back, you just type back to them, you text back to them, you're a creep. Why are you creeping at my door? Anyways, that's the calling card. And these signs, these miracles, these wonders... These are Jesus' calling card that God gave him. Now, God gave, for example, God gave the similar calling cards to Moses. Remember, he had called Moses, burning bush. He says to him, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to plead with or tell Pharaoh that I'm, you're taking the people of Israel out, and they're not going to be slaves anymore. And Moses goes, that doesn't sound like a great plan. I don't think I'm confident enough to do that. Can I have a calling card? Something with, you know, the heaven's logo on it and, you know, signed by Yahweh, something like that. Can I take something like that with me? And, and God says, sure, take your staff, throw it down on the ground. And when you throw it down on the ground in front of Pharaoh, when you're going to make these demands, you throw it down on the ground, it's going to become a, it's going to become a serpent. And then when you pick it up, it's not going to be a serpent anymore. Or or you can do this little uh, calling card. You can stick your hand inside your cloak and when you pull it out, it's going to have leprosy on it. When you put it back in and pull it out, it's not going to have leprosy on it anymore. Or or you're going to have them bring some water in front of you and you're going to be able to pour that out. And when you pour out the water, it's going to be blood. It's three, three signs, three calling cards to authenticate Moses' message in front of God. All of that's in Exodus chapter four. And so... God gave Jesus these, these calling cards, these miracles, these signs, these mighty works, these wonders that he did. And in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, because uh, Luke acts or uh, part one, two okay? in Luke's gospel, Luke records 19 miracles that Jesus did now. That doesn't mean that he only did 19 miracles, of course, because we know that the gospel writers were very selective in the the narratives, the accounts that they brought in, very selective about that. And you can see that one gospel might have this account, and maybe all four gospels has this particular story, but this other story only has two gospels that record it. So very selective in all of that. And the Apostle John actually wrote, he kind of told us about this at the end of his gospel, chapter 21, verse 25. The Apostle John wrote this, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, okay? In the the 21 chapters that I've written here, okay, I wrote a bunch of things, but there's so many more things that he did. And then he goes on to say, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did so many things that could have been written down. And so like in my mind, I'm asking the question, do you think we have 19 miracles in Luke's gospel? Do you think he did A hundred miracles in the three and a half years? Do you think he did hundreds of miracles? Do you think it's possible that in three and a half years he did thousands of miracles? Do you think that's possible? For sure, here's what we do know. I don't know how many miracles he did or how many signs he performed, but what I do know is that the signs and miracles and wonders that he did impacted thousands and thousands and thousands of people. In fact, Peter points that out when he says here in verse 22, right at the end, God attested to who Jesus was by all of these signs, miracles, wonders. Peter says this, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know, you saw him do these miracles. You witnessed them. Some of you were the beneficiaries of these miracles. You were were there. You remember going out and listening to him teach and then nobody had anything to eat and then miraculously 5,000 of us had lunch? If you weren't there on that day, there's a good chance that you were there on the day that he fed 4,000 people. Some of you in the crowd, Peter's pointing out, some of you saw him raise Jorias' daughter. You witnessed the healing of the paralytic. You know men and women who had leprosy that he healed. You saw him cast out demons. Some of you were there in garrisons. in fact, when he cast demons out of this one guy and the demons all went into this herd of pigs and the herd of pigs ran down and, and tumbled over a cliff and went down into the lake and drowned. Some of you were there, you saw it. You were in your village that day and the herdsmen went into town and they told everybody what had happened and it says the entire village came out and saw the thing. You looked over the cliff and you saw the carcasses of the pigs floating in the water. You yourselves know that God attested to the messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth by these wonders and these signs and these miracles. See, Peter's pressing them to think about what they saw and then chose to ignore. Jesus gave every indication that he was indeed the Messiah and instead of placing their faith in him, they rejected him. Like like so many today. The evidence of God is all around us. It's in the very creation. It's in transformed lives. It's in joy and it's in peace that people have. The evidence of God is all around us. The evidence of God is in us. In fact, every honest human being will admit what the author of Ecclesiastes said in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity in our hearts. People, if they're honest, will admit we just know there's a God. And yet, despite our awareness of all of this, we so quickly ignore and even reject him. The call here is to believe he's powerful. He's evidently powerful. And we should have faith in him. Well, he was a man, he was a powerful man, but Jesus was also crucified. The imperative for, is for us to die with him. Now, notice verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, what we're going to see here is the intersection of God's sovereign plan and humanity's responsibility. Okay, We have personal responsibility here, but God is orchestrating the whole thing. But Peter says, not only did you see the miracles and reject him, not only did you see these miracles and reject him, but it wasn't a passive rejection. You're actually complicit in his murder. You crucified him. Verse 23 continues. You, the crowd. He's talking to the crowd. He's not talking to religious leaders, though they are guilty. You, the crowd, crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. And, and by the hands of lawless men, a reference to the Romans who actually carried out the crucifixion. So, so the questions come. Did We say these all the time when we're teaching through the New Testament. Did the Jewish leaders, were they responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Yes, the religious leaders were. Were the Romans responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Yes, the Romans were the ones who actually executed him. Were the, were the people who called out for him to be crucified? The, the part of the crowd that did that, were they responsible? Yes, they were responsible as well. Are you Am I responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? The answer has to be yes. Now, if they didn't feel guilty before, I'm sure they're feeling it now. Not everyone in the crowd were, were part of this calling out for him to be crucified, but some, no doubt, participated in that way. This is all back in Luke chapter 23. You remember the scene that it was Passover. This is before the crucifixion now, but Jesus has been arrested and he's in the hands of Pilate, the Roman governor. It was Passover. And at Passover, there was this tradition that the Roman governor would release one prisoner as a gesture of goodwill to the people of Israel. Remember, they were occupied by the Romans. And so there were two prisoners in custody that day. There was Jesus, who had just been arrested. For claiming to be king, and and then there was this guy named Barabbas who was a notorious criminal. He was a violent and dangerous man. And Pilate kind of put it out in front of the people who should I release to you? And the people started yelling, this crowd starts yelling, Barabbas, release to us Barabbas. We want Barabbas to be free. This criminal. Pilate's like, Are you sure? Why don't I release Jesus to you? And they were like, no, we want Barabbas. And then he goes to and he says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? And they said, crucify him. The crowd starts calling it out. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, some were directly, some no doubt in the crowd listening to Peter preach on this day of Pentecost. Some of them, seven weeks prior, were calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But not everybody was involved in that way. There were probably many, many, many who just sat there in silence. Who didn't say anything, not one way or another. But by their silence, having seen the signs and the wonders and the mighty works of God, by their silence, they were no less guilty. In fact, you you know this expression, it's unattributed, but the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And there were many on that day who did nothing, said nothing, did not raise their voices, did not object, did not appeal to Pilate, did not press their own religious leaders about what they were doing. Jesus was crucified because some actively sought his crucifixion, because some called for it, because some did nothing. I mean, how many people were there actually agreeing with Pilate? Pilate at the end of, of or in the middle of verse uh, uh, twenty three, sorry, Luke twenty-three fifteen, Pilate actually says, Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. He didn't want to crucify him. He only gave in to the crowd's demands for political reasons. How many agreed with Pilate and said nothing? Why did no one stand up to the religious leaders? Every single human being in Jerusalem on that day bore responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, the fact is, this was all part of God's plan. That's what we read already. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ had to die to make atonement for our sins. We would have no forgiveness of sins, no possibility of a relationship with our God apart from Jesus doing this. And the only way to receive that redemptive act, to receive the cleansing of sin, this is the imperative, it's to die with him. It's not so much that I, you know, receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. It's not so much that as much as it is the death of self. It's Paul saying in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. So I must die with him. But of course, it doesn't end there. And this is what we see next. This Jesus is also raised. And so we find new life in him. Peter continues, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, freeing him from the cords of death that bound him the impossibility of being held by death because God is more powerful than the grave. Amen. God is more powerful than the grave. And then he says this commentary on what David said. And I want you to look actually at your text for a second, because if you look at verse, we're going to come back to these verses, but verses 25 through 28 are all indented in your ESV Bibles. Other translations uh, will handle it similarly. It's all indented because this is a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually from Psalm 16 from David's own pen. And so it's this, this quote that Peter's using now to preach through. And so, this is his commentary, now down to verse 31. This commentary on that quote, which we'll come back to. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He's calling David a prophet here, verse 30. That he was not abandoned to Hades, okay? He wasn't abandoned to the grave. He died and was put in the tomb, but he wasn't abandoned to that, nor did his flesh see corruption. His body didn't decay. Because he was raised from the dead. And Peter added, verse 32 this Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. You go back to the early part of the chapter when Peter steps up to actually preach this message. The other 11 apostles are standing up there with him while he's preaching. And he he motions to them as they're standing there. We're all witnesses of this. In fact, the 120 of the 120, most of them, if not all of them, were also witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know from what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That when Jesus started making his appearances after his resurrection, there was one time when there was more than 500 people who saw him at the same time. We are witnesses to the resurrection. The resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that saves us and cleanses us from our sins. Jesus is the only one to make this claim in all of history. The leaders and founders of every other religious system in the world died, were buried, and their tombs and crypts are shrines and places of pilgrimages for their followers. Jesus Christ alone, because he alone is God, was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we think back again to Galatians 2:20, Paul saying, "I'm crucified with Christ." Nevertheless, I live because I have the resurrection power in my life. How many people agree? That's been a lot of sermon right there, and we could just end it right there. How many people agree with that? Okay, I have more to share, but I'm just asking to be polite. Really, ready for another one? Ready for more? If you want more, just say more. more. Okay, and the rest of you didn't say it. You're going to get it anyway. Here we go. So though he's a man, though he's a man and did all that he did miraculously, we can't ignore this Jesus because of all these things that he's done and now understanding that he is divine and and we have to worship him as God. And we're going to go back to those verses now. Peter cites A Psalm 16 here, Psalm 16, 8 to 11. And David wrote these words for himself. He was writing a Psalm and he was thinking of himself as he was saying these things. Peter takes what David said from Psalm 16, quotes it here in his sermon and is saying these things actually apply to Jesus. I want you to imagine Jesus is saying these things. Verse 25, for David says, concerning him, concerning God, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. That could apply to David, could apply to Jesus. When David penned these words, again, a plea to God to vindicate him before his enemies in the face of certain death. Yet again, Peter's applying these verses to the Messianic hope. And he's saying, in fact, that David, knowingly or not, was speaking prophetically of Jesus. Jesus. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through David's writings. Then he further explains, verse 33, this is Peter explaining it, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, key phrase, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, all the mighty works, the signs, the wonders that you're seeing, all of this is being poured out through Jesus because he's God and God's working through him. Again, the key phrase is he's exalted at the right hand of God. He's enthroned with God because he is the Son of God, because he is God. And Peter's bringing a case here, and he's, he's persuading his hearers that the proofs all point to the necessity of a life-changing decision based on who Jesus of Nazareth is. Because if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, You'd better be bowing before him. You better be worshipping him as God and not, not worshipping some cheap and ineffectual substitute as so many do. Not, not worshipping some man-made religious system or some, some cult of self, which is so common today and we'll come back to. But we have to worship Jesus Christ because he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. Not just what we do here. This, this, is, this is corporate worship. This is, this is you and me gathering together in Jesus' name to worship together for 80 or 85 minutes a week. And it's awesome and I'm glad we get to do it. But this isn't like I ticked the worship box now because I did this. The worship of a follower of Jesus Christ is 24-7. I am no less a worshiper of Christ and I am no less worshiping Christ tonight or tomorrow morning when I go to work or in the midst of my marriage or raising my kids or hanging out with friends or doing that leisure activity, whatever it is, every minute of every hour of every day of every day of the week, listen, it's all worship. Am I attributing worth to God? Am I putting him at the center of my life, every aspect of my life? Because he's God, because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Worship him in that way. And among the great motivators to to do that and to give our life to Jesus Christ is this message that he is our hope and we can rest in him. You see that next? The people of Jesus' day were attracted to him because he offered them hope and it was different than anything else they were seeing anywhere else. It was something their religious leaders and their political leaders failed miserably at. So Peter says, again, remember, he's quoting David here. Peter's preaching it. He's quoting David, but he's saying these are really the words of Jesus. Verse 25 um, 26, therefore, he says, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. That could still all apply to David. My flesh will also dwell in hope. We can get our hands around that. But then this, this part didn't really apply to David because he did die. And Peter tells us that for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave. You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your holy one, the king, see corruption. But he did. couldn't have fully been fulfilled in in David. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, for sure, David could have been looking on into eternity and everything God was going to promise him there. But but this is a hope. My flesh, in in my humanity, in this time on earth, I'm going to dwell in hope, he says at the end of verse 26. And that's going to translate into This incredible joy, verse 28, that I'm going to have as a result. The Lord has been so kind to me to give me these things. David says, Peter says. Most people look for hope in the wrong places. The hope that most people put their stock in simply does not stand the test of time. And and hope should be something that stands the test of time. Otherwise, it's not hope. Okay? The hope that most people put their stock in does not stand the test of time for three reasons. First, it is dependent on feelings. I just get all emotional about it. And my hope is resting somewhat in my circumstances and, and how I feel about those things. Or secondly, hope fails. Hope of this kind fails because it's based on motivational sayings. I feel very hopeful today because I saw this really cool meme on Facebook. You should see it. I'll forward it to you. Or the hope that most people put their stock in doesn't stand the test of time because thirdly, it's wishful thinking. This is wishful thinking. I'm just going to say things to you That will make you hopeful. But that have no actual basis in fact. This is where we come back to the the cult of self. That is preached and proclaimed and is in fact the religion of the day. Canada has an official religion. It is the cult of self. It is the individual, not Jesus, at the center of their own life. Its doctrines include, you can do it. Believe in yourself, you've got this, you can beat this. And, and by the way, the religious services, I've noticed, for this cult of self are, are, the, um, are, are, the, are, are the network morning talk shows. Good Morning America is, is the, you know, city TV, what do they call that thing, breakfast television. These are the worship services of the cult of self. Because everything, everything is happy in the morning. They're just going to launch you into your day with with sunshine and, and rainbows and unicorns. Off you go. Now, that kind of hope can serve you temporarily. It can get you through a day. It might get you through a week. If you, if you, lather, rinse, repeat. I mean, I think you could, you could almost make a lifetime out of that. You could watch Good Morning America every day and get a little boost. I think they even have a weekend edition. So you could watch that and feel good about yourself. You could read a meme or two. You could, you could get through it. And the thing is that that kind of hope, that temporal hope that we have to keep topping up, that will get you, at best, that will get you to the day of your death. And then it'll go no further. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking for a hope that gets me past the day of my death. I want a hope that's going to get me all the way into eternity. I want a hope that lasts. I want a hope that isn't about temporary happiness that I have to top up day by day. I'm about a hope that produces the kind of joy that verse 28 talks about. I want a real hope that results in real joy that transcends all of my circumstances. So it doesn't matter what's happening in my life. I have hope and I have joy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this crowd that's gathered to hear Peter's message, they're attracted by the commotion in the upper room and they're hearing the 120 do all these, say all these different things in different languages. And why, why do you think that they've actually gathered at this moment? We've already said that, that they were lacking hope and they saw something in Jesus that was different. But I wonder if they've just come to see a show. I wonder if they've, a crowd has gathered and they want to see a spectacle. Cheryl and I were in London this summer, uh, England, and, and we were walking down the Thames River and this, this uh, neat little pathway they have with all shops and restaurants and that kind of thing. And, and we would just notice every once in a while, a crowd would start to gather. And, and in the middle of the crowd, there was a, there was a busker or a comedian or, or some guy juggling monkeys or something. There was just a, some guy doing something. And I don't think they juggled monkeys. Anyway, see, so Cheryl and I, we would just be like everyone else. You walk over and you watch what's going on. You're attracted so that you could go back to the hotel and you could say, wasn't that a thing that we saw today on the streets of London? Wasn't that a thing? Now, maybe there were some people in the crowd who were like that. They just wanted to be able to go home that night and say, you would not believe what I saw in Jerusalem today. It's crazy. But I think it was a lot more than that. They were people just like you and me in almost every way. Some, we don't think about that about historical people at times, but they were people just like us. They had marriages. Some of their marriages were good and some of them weren't great. Some some of them had families where their kids were giving them trouble. They had jobs that they liked or didn't like. They had health issues they were facing. They were trying to make their budget work. Some of them had traveled to Jerusalem for the festival, probably thinking I probably shouldn't have spent the money on this trip. They had arguments with friends. They thought and wondered about the future. They just generally struggled through life, just like you and I do. And as they did, they had a a government that it seemed to them a government that was more interested in holding power than about good governance or about doing what was best for the people. And to top it all off, The one place that they should have been able to go for solace and for comfort and to make sense of all of this had been so badly corrupted. The very leaders who had been charged with conducting people into the presence of God had become no better than their own government. Selfishly motivated. Their faith had been compromised by leaders who had forgotten God. And Jesus offered them something very different than that. Real, lasting hope and joy as a, broad, as, a, as a byproduct of that hope. And you and I know, if there's no hope, there's no joy. If you're despairing of life, you will be miserable, sad, and despondent. But if you know your future, like if you're confident in your future, if you're latching on to the promises of God, if you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you and you believe His words, that his words are the words of life. And if, you, and if in your moment, in the presence now, that's the future, but in the present you realize, God is with me. He's walking through this every step of the way with me. I can have joy no matter my circumstances. And I have Everything. And these first followers of Christ, the the 120 and the people who are about to respond to Peter's message, we're going to see that, the great response to Peter's message. 3,000 people are going to give their life to Christ in this moment and be baptized. And they were going to need this hope-joy package. Because they're about to embark, all of them, out on this great commission, this Acts 1-8, I want you to, to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And for many of them, it's going to be a very difficult, very difficult journey as they embarked on that, where many of them would give their lives for the cause of Christ. Finally, this. This Jesus is Lord. Submit to him. It's clear again in verses 29 and 30 verse 34, that David's not the fulfillment of these things. It was always going to be his descendant. And of his descendant, David says here, and this is actually from Psalm 110, verse 1, the second indentation there in verses 34 and 35. Peter quotes it. The Lord said to my Lord, God the Father said to Jesus, sit at my right hand. David calls his descendant, he he calls his descendant, my Lord. Because he was far superior to King David, who was the greatest king of Israel. The one for whom the Davidic line was named. The one from whom the Messiah would come. And yet David, this greatest king of Israel, looks down through history and says, There's going to be a descendant who's so much greater than me that I'm going to say to him, You're my Lord. And I'll submit to him. David himself will bow and again it all comes off this key phrase this right hand of god phrase 11 times in the new testament there's a there's a reference to a passage in the old testament that speaks of jesus being at the right hand of the throne of god he has the position of divine power and authority and so peter in this in this short span of verses has taken us from jesus the man to jesus the messiah to jesus his lord this progression and unveiling of Jesus has life-changing implications for his hearers. Because if this is true, if, as Paul will say in, in his letter to the Philippians, this becomes the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, a confession that every single human being will make one day. If it's true that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you and I either live in submission to him or in rebellion against him. We either live in submission to him and receive all the benefits and blessing of that, or we live in rebellion against him and face the eternal consequences of that. You say, well, I, I feel like I'm kind of in the middle of that. I feel like I'm still investigating Christ, so I feel like I'm not fully on the Jesus is Lord program, but I'm also, I don't feel that I'm really rebellious against him. I feel like I'm just somewhere caught in the middle there. So, so there is no middle. We already saw that the innocent bystanders who said nothing who were apparently impartial with regard to Christ on that day, were just as guilty of crucifying Him because they didn't speak up. There is no middle. There is either you are surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, or you are in rebellion against Him. Peter punches it at the end in verse 36. He says, This let all the house of Israel therefore know. Listen up, everyone. Let, let yourself know for certain, he says, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. God has made this Jesus a man. He's made him Messiah. And he's made him Lord. And he just leaves that. You killed him. You, ki- you killed him. And he leaves that hanging in the air. And this isn't a word just to the pilgrims there for Pentecost in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit inspired His Word, and it's being preached here this morning. Peter's saying the same thing to every person in this room He's Lord, God made Him, Christ, and Lord, and you crucified Him. And I'm afraid you have no claim on Christ, you have no claim on being saved. If you have not called him Lord and are not submitting to his ways. Kent Hughes said this. There are professing Christians. Professing. We talked about that off the top. There are professing Christians who need Christ. They've heard. But they haven't heard. It's possible to be a respectable, well-taught, moral Sinner. You see, it's not about just, you know, I, I prayed a prayer. I remember praying the prayer to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and say, I signed a card, I raised my hand, I walked an aisle. I come to church, I do all the things. But it's possible to do all the things and not have submitted to Him as Lord. I was raised in the church. I've never known anything but church. I'm a church kid. I was raised in a Christian home. I understand, and it's awesome. But if you have not personally said the words from a believing heart, convinced of their truth, if you have not said, Jesus Christ is Lord, Of my life. You have no claim on Christ. You have no claim on him. Because Jesus is not an a la carte God. We can't just look for the things we like about Jesus and pull those out and say, like, I like these parts of Jesus. And so I'm just going to I'm going to buy these parts. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. To receive him as Savior is to submit to him as Lord. So, for you, will it be this Jesus? The one we just talked about. For you, will it be this Jesus? Let me pray. Father, again, um, this is a tremendously sobering message. And one, uh, Father, that um, no one here can escape the implications of it. And so, Father, I'm, I'm pleading with you in, in this moment to strive with us, because no doubt there's some struggling in the room. God, that your Holy Spirit would move in an extraordinary way. And, and Father, what's cool about it is you know us, you get us. You know each individual in the room. You know all the circumstances. You know the struggles. You know the obstacles that are going to be faced with a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord by every person in this room. But God, that's the hope that we hold out. That everyone here would make that decision. Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. He's at the center of all of it. So God, hear this prayer. Do the deep work in each one of our lives that only you can do. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.